Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Women to Watch. Uh, my name is Susan Rocco, and every week I'm in the studio with some wonderful ladies in the Philadelphia area um, who I'm privileged to uh, sit down and, and interview. Um, and this week is not any different with my guest. Uh, before we get started, I'll give you my contact information if you're listening and you would like to come in and share with us what your business is doing. So please feel free to call me at 215-313-5561 or shoot me an email to srocco233 at gmail. So uh, today in the studio, I'm very excited to have um, a, a woman from the area who's doing a lot of different things um, at one time. And her name is Edie Weinstein, and she is therapist and coach by Divine Design. Um, Edie has a, a, a degree in psychology and a master's in social work. And I welcome you to the studio today. It's painted my my favorite color, purple. It is. It is. Very purple soothing. on one side, blue on the other. Yeah. yeah. Very soothing. Good. Um, I want to get right into um, talking to you a little bit about uh, when you were a young girl mm -hmm. and your early years and, and what your aspirations were back in the day. I, I'm curious to see if they're similar to all the great work that you're doing now. So Thank talk you. to us a little bit about where you grew up and... Mm -hmm. and uh, some of the activities you were involved in then. Sure, absolutely. I grew up in Willingboro, New Jersey, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. Um, it was one of the original Levittown communities, you know, Levittown, Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. And I grew up with a loving, wonderful family, parents who were married almost 52 years when my dad died in 2008. And I was one of two children. I have a younger sister, Jan, who lives in Hamilton, New Jersey. Okay. And um, I was also really blessed to be surrounded by a large extended family. At one time or another, each of my my grandmothers lived with us. Oh, that's and nice. It was, it was, it was a multi-generational household. My one grandmother, my maternal grandmother, and this was pivotal for my life, died when I was, I just turned four and she was, it was like losing a third parent. And it wasn't until recently that I, that I recognized the impact that that had on just about every aspect of my life. I became what I call a codependent caregiver, you know, fixing, saving, curing, healing. You talked about the things that I do professionally. So that planted the seeds as well. Um, I did she did she have a long illness no, that you didn't. witnessed? No, she had a stroke. Oh, she, she, she did. Stroke, okay, and she died pretty quickly, from what I remember. And she was probably in her in her late seventies. But what I noticed is that my parents kept on keeping on. They took care of us. They had full time jobs, part time jobs, volunteer work, large circle of friends. So my role models were people that did it all. So when you mention everything that I do all at once. And, and your song, you know, the Superwoman concept. Right. I, you know, I, I didn't bring my Wonder Woman cape with me right. today. Oh, I, left it, I left it in the car. <laughs> that would have made for a yeah. great picture. Yeah. Although I, I have my fairy wings in the car. I'm, oh, I'm, also, I'm also a clown. You mentioned that. Uh, and, and she's a, she's a, um, uh, a fairy. Her name is Feather. So, <laughs> uh, But I, I grew up being told that I could do or be anything I wanted. I don't remember having any particular career aspirations back then. Whenever I would play with my friends, we would, you know, I would, play the teacher I guess okay and I have a you know teaching role in just about everything that I do now uh, grew up going to Girl Scouts swim team Hebrew school um, girl I say Girl Scouts yeah um, had lots of friends lots of activities felt really um, appreciative of what I had in my life and as I grew up um, I developed more interest in, in swimming. I, I started uh, joining, I joined the swim team when I was 11 years old because I had asthma. Now that's a pivotal thing too, that um, I had illness throughout my life and my parents didn't baby me. They didn't say, oh, you can't do this because you're too frail. They expected me to be a, a normal kid. Oh, that's great. So as a result of that, I was on a swim team till I was 18. Then I coached for three years. So again, I was in a teaching role. Right. Pretty coaching early on. seems coaching, to be teaching. a, a yep. theme. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and my parents were and still are on the other side, wherever they are, my most ardent cheerleaders. So I feel incredibly loved. Right. So and that's and a you history. had three female role models, which I find interesting. Yeah. So you had two yeah. grandmothers and your mother right. all there supporting you and yeah. encouraging you. Yeah. And aunts. Uh, my grandmother was one of 13 children. Wow. And I had two other really powerful role models, too. One was my Aunt Kate, who I'm trying to think how, how old we were. Um, she was living in Philadelphia at the time. And she took a bus from Philadelphia to Willingboro, walked the maybe mile and a half, two miles to our house, knocked on the door, didn't even expect her to be there. A couple hours later, we get a phone call from 
her one of her sons says to my mother have you seen my mother and she says oh yeah she's sitting on the kitchen floor playing jacks with my kids so she was probably <laughs> in her you know, 60s by then right and another aunt her sister edith I, no, I was not named for her okay uh, but she was a role model for starting her life again when my uncle died I th- i'm thinking my aunt was in her 50s she became an artist she started doing volunteer work she lived to be 103 Something like that. So very powerful female role models. Right. Absolutely. Now tell me about uh, your school year. So you were involved in swimming. That was your main activity? Mm -hmm. Well, I was on the swim team. I was also involved in environmental concerns. We had an ecology club. And in our neighborhood, our community, we had a, um, a recycling center. And we would cl- they'd collect newspapers, we'd stack newspapers, and the f- coolest part of it for me was the bins of, of glass, and we'd smash the bottles. And boy, was that a really good stress stress management, really you know, stress reliever. Yeah, smashing right. the bottle. You know, the re- so, my parents modeled that volunteering. So I okay. did a lot of volunteering when I was a kid too. Okay, talk to me about. Um any struggles that you might have had as a young girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm yeah. always interested to know, you know, we all have our different kind of, oh, yeah. you know, demons or struggles or yeah. whatever. And, and yeah. tell me what yours were and mm-hmm. and how um, they're affecting you today. Okay. In the grand scheme of things, as I look back on it, they weren't major. I had asthma, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. and I was diagnosed with asthma shortly after my grandmother died. Now, there are people that would say symbolically uh, problems with the lungs have to do with re- repressed grief. Un, you know, unresolved grief. So I was in and out, you know, in and out of treatment for asthma. I would wake up in the middle of the night having a hard time breathing. So my mother would take me into the bathroom, turn the shower on, and I'd breathe in steam. Occasionally, I'd have to go to the ER. It wasn't anything major. Did so they have the nebulizer back, back then? Back then, they or? didn't. We, we right. had our own nebulizer in the bathroom. So yeah, the right. Well, bathroom. that's why that's it's it. interesting. There's all kinds of you know inhalers and nebulizers I today. I don't remember that back then, but I used to get allergy shots and you know go to the doctors a lot. But the cool thing about it was that while we were waiting in the doctor's office, my mother and I would read to each other. We'd have flashcards. She would use that as an opportunity to inject knowledge <laughs> as well as the, the allergy serum. Uh, so that happened. That's smart. And that was the reason that I became a swimmer. The doctor said, why don't you do that? That will help you right. You know, exercise your lungs. I was also born with the umbilical cord around my ankles. So I, ha- I was told that I had weak ankles. So I complied with that and I ended up breaking both ankles, sixth grade, eighth grade, 10th grade. The unconscious mind is so powerful that I I didn't consciously think, oh, I'm going to break my ankles, but I believed the hype about broken, about hearing that story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The other thing was that I used, I had, um, I was flat footed and pigeon toed. So I had to wear these horrible, clunky red corrective shoes. And back then kids wore penny loafers and sneakers and I couldn't do that. So I felt like I couldn't move ahead. Again, I'm moving so fast right now. And I've had a hard time slowing down because of that. That impacted on, on the life that I've chosen for myself now. Okay. Is that I keep on moving. <laughs> yeah. Now, those are those are both kind of physical yeah. struggles. How about any kind of um, emotional, emotional struggles? Emotional struggles? Yeah. I, I don't recall. The interesting thing is I don't recall too many emotional struggles, again, except for my grandmother's death. Mm-hmm. The other, My other grandmother, my paternal grandmother, died probably when I was 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And... My parents, again, had a lovely, wonderful marriage. Uh, my dad had some cardiac problems, but he always bounced back. So you had that sense of confidence I from did. the beginning. Well, my, my parents, I, I look back on it now, and I say that my parents gifted me with resilience. They taught me how to live without them. And my dad, as I mentioned, died in 2008, and then my mom died in 2010. Mm -hmm. So I am what I call an adult orphan, like a lot of us of our generation. Right, right. And they are so very present with me in in so many ways. And I talk to them regularly. And and as a psychiatric social worker, uh, I know that that's not psychosis talking to, you know, I talk to dead people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what I say, you know, I feel that sometimes after people pass, they're with us in a more powerful way, right, than when they were here. Um, Talk to me about your first job. What was your first job out of um, wow. school? Out of school. Well, I was going to say my first job was babysitting when I was 11. But my yeah, how first about professional job outside of school. Yes. See, I graduated well, when I was in school. Actually, I did volunteer work that turned into a paid position. I worked for a counseling center, which is now defunct from what I know, but it was called Together Incorporated. And it really was where I cut my teeth on counseling. We had a hotline, crisis intervention, 24-hour hotline, and people could call up and ask for information like, where do I go for this or that? Uh, it was a suicide prevention hotline. 
So I learned, I learned that. And how old were you when I you was were doing that? Nineteen, maybe. Okay, something like that's that. young it was to be dealing with something mm-hmm. so heavy. Yep. yep. They also had we had a youth shelter, we had a rape crisis program, uh, we had a women's program. So I learned from the ground, you know, ground zero about counseling. And it was also where I made some of the, the dearest friends in my life. And we're still all these years later, very close. And we have reunions periodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen each other through illness, divorce, death, um, at least two, I'm thinking three of my friends have since died um, that were part of our circle. Um, one had a stroke, um, st- still kicking, <laughs> you know, he's still kicking. Um, we're, you know, we're, all of us have continued to work in human services in one way or another Okay. as counselors, therapists, social workers, caseworkers, teachers. Do you think that that job kind of solidified for you yeah. wanting to, to get into the social work and well, interestingly, I, I did in some regards, but my passion is journalism and I don't have a degree in journalism. Writing is what feeds my soul. But as a social worker, I use stories a lot. I use metaphors a lot when I do counseling and coaching. And the the word, the written word, the spoken word, memory is so powerful as a healing tool. Right, right. So I do use that. Well, and your um, psychology degree Mm -hmm. is is probably Mm -hmm. a huge um, positive for you in Mm -hmm. your writing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about maybe one of your first published pieces? Sure. Um, Back in 1988, and this connects with another aspect of my life. Um, I met my husband in 1986, 86. We got married in 87 and we started Visions Magazine in 1988. And it was about holistic health, wellness, spirituality, transformation, and so on. We did it for 10 years before he died. And then uh, about six months before he passed in 1998, we sold it to friends that published it for seven years as New Visions, and then someone else bought it, and it continues as New Visions to this day. Okay. And people in your area would be familiar with it. They, it's at Whole Foods, other holis- uh, holistic centers, um, health food stores, and so on. It's what I call my great-grandchild that's out there <laughs> in the world. But that was my first, those were my first published pieces were in my own publication. Right, right. So it was the perfect venue for it, and I got to interview some of the most amazing movers and shakers in the transformational fields and I continue to do that now right which is so fascinating I wish you know that's going to be a whole other show Mm -hmm. I think to to talk about all the different people that you've interviewed we'll we'll talk about one but um uh so let's so you mentioned your husband Mm -hmm. and I know that that um the passing of your husband had a had a big effect on you Mm -hmm. and and um was was a factor in what you pursued mm-hmm. afterwards. Absolutely. So let's talk about him a little sure. bit. And, and wh- how, where did you meet? Well, that, that's another, I, I believe in miracles. I believe in what I call cosmic coincidence, in messages from the universe, in trusting intuition and guidance. In 1986, I had planned on going to a tr- on a trip to Russia with other teachers and healers and counselors on what was called a citizen's diplomacy mission. And it was put together by a dear friend of mine named Alan Cohen. Alan is a spiritual teacher who lives in Maui now. And he had brought people together during the Cold War and had partnered with an organization in, in uh, what was then the Soviet Union so that we would learn that we, that we weren't the enemy, they weren't the enemy. So we went there to meet them heart to heart. I had um, planned on going on the trip, and the trip was scheduled October 12th through the 25th of 1986. I had already put down my deposit, was excited about going, and then the voice and with a capital V. Um, which I would say, in my mind, the voice of God, if you want to say that. And it was a gender-neutral voice. And it said, no, you're not supposed to go to Russia now. And it used the word Russia, which was kind of strange because, again, it was called the Soviet Can Union I, were you Were you sitting complacent at home, or when I did this? Do you remember the moment? I don't even remember what I was doing. I don't know if I was meditating or just going through... I can't even remember. Nobody's ever asked me that. That's yeah, an interesting I find, question. <laughs> I have no clue I what wonder, I was doing. Do you, I mean, are, really, if you're able to hear that when you're kind of yes. in activity or yes. were you being quiet? No, I don't even remember what I was doing. But yes, I hear the voice uh, you know, giving me guidance right. throughout my life, no matter what I'm doing. And it said, you're not supposed to go to Russia now. You're supposed to be in Philadelphia. And I went, huh? <laughs> but it's a trip of a lifetime. And the voice repeated. And I said, but I'll be spending my 26th birthday in the land of some of my ancestors, like you know, my my paternal grandparents were from Russia. They were Russian Jewish immigrants. And then on my mother's side, a few generations back, they were from Russia. And the voice repeated. I said, but I don't live in Philadelphia. I lived in Bucks County at the time, as I do now. And the voice repeated. And I said, um, you're not going to stop, are you, until I cancel this trip? And the voice said, yep. <laughs> so <laughs> I called the sponsors. I said, you're going to think this is crazy. But 
and they didn't think it was crazy. They said, okay, no problem. I put the, I put it on the back burner. Didn't even think about it. October 24th, the day before I was due back, I went to Philadelphia with friends to hear one of my favorite spiritual teachers. His name is Ram Das, And um, he was, um, Richard Albert was his birth name, and Ram Das was his chosen name, uh, which is Sanskrit for um, servant of God, I believe. Ram, yeah, Ram Das, servant, servant of God. And some people consider him a guru. He doesn't consider himself that. But he was speaking in Philadelphia at the Unitarian Church on the subject of Seva, S-E-V-A, which is Sanskrit for selfless service. During the intermission, uh, a friend came up to me. Her name is Uta Arnold, and she's a local artist and healer. And she had this curly-haired, red-haired, bearded man with her and said, Edie, I want you to meet Michael. He's coming to a workshop that you're going to be giving two weeks down the road at a conference. And it was called the Love Yourself Play Shop. It was about self-esteem. So we shook hands, and we talked and, and for a few minutes. And I said, okay, I'll see you in a couple weeks. And I, and I trotted it off. And... So was that a workshop that you created? Yes, I, I did. Uh, I don't do it anymore in that particular form, but Michael had already signed up for it, was planning on attending. Now, the interesting irony was had I gone to Russia, I would not have met him that day, and I wouldn't have been teaching that workshop. Part of the agreement was that if we went on the trip, we were to do classes or presentations about what we experienced, and Michael would not have come to that workshop. It wasn't on his radar. Okay. So the universe was, was scheming. So two weeks later, we're sitting in a circle in the workshop, and I was talking about the importance of eye contact and communication. And I'd like to say the good student that he was, he was just lasering right in. I was sitting opposite him in the, in the circle, and I found myself sliding down on my chair, thinking, oh, my God, what's going on here? You know? And I could you know, feel my heart starting to race a little bit. And he, when he told the story, he would say when we first met, his heart was, was skipping a few beats, and I said it took two weeks for mine to catch up. So we got married May of 1987, started Visions Magazine in May of 1988. So we did that for a couple of years in this area. My parents retired and moved to Florida in 89, and while we were visiting them, we thought, wouldn't it be nice to be able to enjoy the sunshine, start a second regional edition of the magazine, move to Florida, live in paradise? So we did. And uh, 1992 was what I lovingly call our year from hell. In early 92, I had an ectopic pregnancy. Didn't even know I was pregnant. We were trying and nothing happened, as far as we know. Right. We had just adopted our son, who was almost five at the time. Now he's 25. Okay. And um, where, where did you adopt? He's from, he, well, we, we were living in, Flo in South Florida. He okay. was born in Nevada. Oh, okay. Um, so we adopted him. He was living in Florida at the time as well. So we adopted Adam. And so that was February of, of 92. March of 92 was the ectopic pregnancy. May of 92, Michael was diagnosed with hepatitis C, which is a serious liver disease. Right. And if left un unsuccessfully treated, people either get cirrhosis or liver cancer. And that was in May of that year. In August of that year, we were living in Homestead, Florida. And I don't know if that n town name is familiar to any of your listeners, but 20 years ago, August 24th, 1992, Hurricane Andrew came through. And we were at ground zero for the, for the hurricane. We, we lost everything oh so every three months it seemed it there was, was like something yep. happening yep. Okay. and it felt like we were being tested but i don't remember thinking why us and i don't know whether michael did he, he, we talked about it a little bit but i thought okay we're being called on our faith's being tested our family and friends are there for us we had a place to go we stayed with my parents who live like 40 miles north of us so we were able to go there we were safe our animals were safe we had a dog a cat and a rabbit and they all survived <laughs> <laughs> uh, we learned the, the value of um, of having good insurance. You know, State, right. Farm, State Farm took. Can I, I don't know if I can say that. They took yeah. very good care of us. <laughs> Shout out to State Farm. So yes. yes, they took yes. very good care of us. Um, and we learned what was important. Yes, uh, we learned that family matters, that love matters, that things don't matter. Right. And right. the fact that we were all safe. So we moved back to Bucks County in January. It was New Year's Day, 1993, and I'm now continuing to live in the same house that we lived in, that we moved in back then. Fast forward six years, and Michael's condition has gotten progressively worse in and out of the hospital. I would joke that we racked up frequent flyer miles every time we went into the emergency room. Humor was a huge part of, of our, I would say, healing process. And coping. Coping, yeah. Yes. Even though he died, he was healed because he had a lot of family issues that got 
taking, I'd say taking care of, but resolved. There Good. was a peace made with his family. Right. Um, his, uh, his mom died, I'm thinking like a year and a half before he did, but his dad was present, his sisters were present. My, my mom was there. My dad was not able to come back up from Florida in time. My sister was there. Friends were there. Um, the last five and a half weeks of his life, um, I lived in the ICU with him at Jefferson Hospital. And I called them angels and scrubs because they took every which way people took care of us. Our needs were taken care of. Good, good. So Michael's illness and death was probably one of the most powerful healing spiritual experiences of my life. And the dialogues continued. The, you know, the dialogues with God, whatever you believe God to be. Now, as an interfaith minister, I don't tell anybody what to believe spiritually. That's an inside job. But my connection with that presence felt um, more solid than it ever did. We would have what I'd call God wrestling sessions. And I would say, he's mine and you can't have him. And God would say, uh-uh, he's mine and he's on loan to you like everybody else in your life. So um, I slept there at the hospital for the, that whole five and a half weeks. I didn't sleep at home till the night he died. Another interesting thing happened. The, the day that he died, um, when we turned the, the life support off, because he, he never got a liver transplant, which is what could have given him more life, more, you know, more time, um, I heard the voice again, right? As soon as we turned the machines off, it said, call the seminary and ask to finish what Michael started. And I knew exactly what that meant because a year earlier, he had enrolled at the new seminary, which is a school in New York, to become an interfaith minister. The first year, I casually studied along with him because he kept falling asleep, so I would read to him. He had neuropathy in his hands, so he couldn't type, so I'd type his papers. Okay. I was learning the course material without knowing why. So... A couple days after he died, now he died December 21st of 98, his funeral was on Christmas Eve morning, and a few days later, I called the seminary, and I spoke to one of the deans, and she said, absolutely, we'd love to have you in the class on two conditions. One is that you're doing this for yourself, too, and not just for Michael. The other is that if you want to graduate with his class this year, you need to do the first year's work all over again that he did. And the second year's work back to back, or just wait till ne the following year. And I said, no, I'm going to do it all at once. So I completed two years worth of study in about five months. Wow. Wow. We're going to stop right there yep. um, and uh, take a break for our sponsors. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute. From Willow Grove to Westchester, Pottstown to Philadelphia, it's News Talk 1180 WFYL. What woman out there is not tired of the department store shopping experience? Unkept dressing rooms, no customer service, and never being able to find the right size. This is your answer. Come shop with us. We are best dressed, and we are the most exciting new way to shop the beautiful private label of W by Worth. If you're tired of wearing only 20% of your clothing 80% of the time, wardrobe building is a must, and we can show you how to do that and save money. Best Dressed is a business that offers a luxury brand of clothing that will forever be in your closet and always your favorite thing to wear. For the absolute best customer service, easy purchasing and returns, personal custom fitting, and shopping when it's most convenient for you, please contact Best Dressed at 215-266-5680. And be sure to view the spring collection at wbyworth.com. Is your online store cluttering your house and garage with your product? Does it require you to spend all your free time shipping packages, leaving you no time to work with new customers or develop new marketing initiatives? Now is the time to free up your space and time and let ABC Fulfillment provide you with cost-effective warehousing, order processing, and shipping for your products. Our 20,000 square foot warehouse is conveniently located in Ambler, PA. ABC Fulfillment is a 100% woman-owned and operated business and has helped many small and mid-sized businesses solve their warehousing and order processing problems. We pride ourselves on our attention to detail as well as our excellent customer service. When you call us, you will always speak with someone who can help you solve your problem and not be asked to leave a message. Our personal touch and expertise separates us from the rest. Last year, we shipped over 150,000 packages for our customers, including order processing and shipping for the Jill Steals and Deals segment of the Today Show, saving our customers both time and money. 
If you would like to spend more time finding new products to sell, reaching new customers, and marketing your products, now is the time to call ABC Fulfillment. Please call 215-628-3154 and ask for Eileen or Lisa to help you get started. Are you a startup nonprofit wondering how to get the word out and raise money? Are you a small business looking to form partnerships with community causes? You may even be a corporation looking to establish a community giving arm or foundation. We can help in all of these situations and do so beginning with a free consultation. Events with a Purpose is a boutique business devoted to helping both nonprofits and for-profits with their charitable goals. We can help you with one event or consult on an ongoing basis. We specialize in events, fundraising, and corporate philanthropy, and do so by offering flexible payment options. Resolve to make this the year to make a difference, and let Events with a Purpose help you get started. You can view all of our information at eventswithapurpose.net, on our Facebook page, and by following us on Twitter as well. Please call Jennifer Robinson at 215-266-8335 or email jennifer at eventswithapurpose.net for a free consultation today. Want your home to look great for company from out of town, moving to a new place, or just want the satisfaction of a clean, healthy home? Whatever your reason, everybody needs to clean. So why not choose the line of cleaning tools that makes your task easier? Quickie is your one-stop cleaning solution with everything you need to get the job done right. Whether you're cleaning one room or the whole house, Quickie has the right tool for you. It doesn't matter if you prefer a more traditional mop and bucket or if you'd like to save time with a new Quickie spray mop. Quickie has everything you need to get the job done. Founded in Philadelphia 60 years ago, Quickie's commitment to quality and value have helped it grow into the number one cleaning tool company in America. It's Quickie and it's clean. Look for Quickie products at Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, ShopRite, and other fine retailers near you. At Bluebell Physical Therapy, our goal is to get you back in the game, back to work, and back to your normal way of life. Our highly respected team provides preventative and rehabilitation services from everyday physical and occupational therapy to post-operative rehab of your knees, shoulders, or spine. Bluebell Physical Therapy focuses on achieving each patient's maximum level of recovery. Bluebell Physical Therapy, the treatment you need for the therapist you trust. News Talk 1180-WFYL. Streaming live at 1180-WFYL.com. We are back in the studio, gang, with um, Edie Weinstein, who is a therapist and coach by Divine Design. And uh, the first half of the show, we, we left off with Edie talking about Sadly, the passing of her husband, but how that affected her next um, step in her journey. So why don't we pick up there um, where you started the ministry? Absolutely. Now, it's a a seminary for interfaith ministers. I was raised Jewish, went to Hebrew school till I was 16, became a bat mitzvah. So that Judaism was my religion of, of choice and of upbringing. When I told my parents that I was going to enroll in the seminary, my mother said, I have one question for you. Are you converting? And I said, no, I'm expanding. And I, you know, I believe what I say is that love is my religion and God's too big to put in a box. So it's multiple choice, I guess is what I call it. I go where my heart leads me. In 12-step recovery work, you know, AANA, we talk about the God of your understanding. So the God of my understanding led me to do this work. So she said, okay, we support you completely as long as it makes you happy. My parents came up from Florida. They were, I'm guessing, in their early 70s at the time to my ordination, which was the beautiful cathedral of St. John the Divine in in New York, Um, huge, gorgeous Gothic cathedral. So they were there for the ordination. Michael's sisters were there. His then 80-something-year-old aunt was there. And I walked down the aisle carrying Michael's picture, and we put his picture on the altar. And it got, you know, his, like his spirit got ordained along yeah. with us. Oh, that's nice. 
nice. That's so nice. I do a lot of weddings, baby blessings, funerals. And in the beginning, I told people you get two ministers for the price of one. He's always right here. Yeah, he comes around occasionally. But it, you know. um, but Is that, that where you the, got the name for your uh, what, design? Divine, divine, the, by, no, oh, actually. St. John Actually, no, not at, I didn't even, that didn't even occur to me. But what happened was, again... I would, this time I was either meditating or dreaming and the words by divine design came to me and I said, what does that mean? And God said, you'll know. And literally those words, you'll know. And I said, oh, you know what? Maybe that's a good name for my business because my take on it is that we are co-creators. So our lives are happening by divine design, you know, along with whatever. Again, that's my belief. Right, right. So I like that. I, you know, I like that idea that we create by divine design. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's how that happened. I think that's a great, um, just a great expression mm -hmm. because I think so much, you know, in our lives happens aside from what our choices are yeah. every day that we oh, make, yeah. right? So tell me, you spent many years um, working in a psychiatric facility mm -hmm. and I would imagine that was difficult and um, had an impact. It did. Um, I worked there from, I'm trying to think what year, 2001 or 2002, something like that. And I left my job in, in June of this year. And I loved my coworkers. I loved being of service. Um, what I didn't like was, was the expectation that as a social worker, and this is true in any setting, not just where I worked, but the expectation is social worker, miracle worker, same thing, you know, that we were expected to fix, save, heal, cure people who had very serious mental mental illness and, and challenges. And um, I loved being able to help impact people's lives, help give them the tools to make positive changes in their lives. And before I left, I was talking to a coworker who said, you know how some people say they want a wife to take care of all the details of their lives, whether they're gay or straight, whether they're married or not. She says, no, nah, I don't want a wife. I want a social worker. Yeah. <laughs> a very own social worker. Right, right. So I call myself a cosmic concierge. Uh, that as a social worker, we're expected to provide service for whatever needs there are. Now, if you remember back when I was in my 20s, I said I worked at this crisis intervention center that had a crisis, you know, a hotline and um, a resource pro program. I now have a Rolodex in my brain where if somebody says, do you know where I can find? I went, wait a minute. And I kind of roll through my brain. It's, oh yeah, call this person. Oh, good for or you. So, yeah. And that comes to you. Yeah. Easily. Well, that does. Yeah. Ironically, I'm, I'm 54 now and I have what I call my middle age moments or my wise woman moments all too frequently where the hard drive is full and it's not storage, it's retrieval. Yes. That's the problem. No, we all <laughs> suffer from that for sure. Well, I laugh about it now so that when I do presentations and somebody says, can you repeat that? I'll say no. I have no clue what I just said. <laughs> Can you tell me what, you know, give me, you know, give me a hint. I, and then, oh, oh, I get that. You know, <laughs> I, I understand that. So I'm channeling. I'm, yeah. You know, it's like, well, we're, you know, it's really great that there's people like you out there to do that kind of work because for a lot of us being around people like that who are suffering from those kind of um, difficulties, it's unsettling. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you have to, remain calm and, mm -hmm. and, and thoughtful. And, mm -hmm. um, I think that's really a gift that you're able Thank to you. do that and think clearly. Well, I wasn't always in the time that I knew it was time to leave was when my compassion meter started running a court low and I wasn't always able to be Zen. In fact, I had a, a coworker that said, Oh, you're so calm. You're like mother Teresa. And I said, honey, I'm no mother Teresa. And I bet there were some days when mother Teresa was no mother Teresa. Right. Right. If you're whom you're human, <laughs> you're human. You're human. Yes, yes yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I, uh, but I was very blessed to have amazing coworkers and it, we're, we're still very close to this day. And, and I stopped by and visit them periodically. Now the cool thing is, um, I, I, what I, what I would say is that even though I had the keys to the locked doors, I still couldn't escape until I handed my keys in. Oh, right. And now yeah, when I use it, I need to ring the doorbell. In. I need to ring the doorbell for them to let me in and out. Yeah, I don't right. have my keys anymore. Right. But it, but it taught me a lot. And I honor and I value what I learned there. Um, I honor the patients and their families that I was blessed to serve. And even though there are times when I thought, am I losing my mind? I could, you know, I could get a sense. And, and I did my best to teach them the resiliency skills that my parents taught me because if there was nothing else I offered them, it was the, the knowing that they've survived everything that has ever happened in their lives. Right, right. And I worked with a lot of abuse and trauma survivors. Okay. Well, yeah. resiliency is, mm -hmm. is probably, the, we know we're all going to have mm -hmm. some difficult times in our yeah. lives. So yeah. if you're resilient, that's huge. Yeah. I, and I would rather have somebody be resilient than strong because when you're resilient, you can bend. Yeah. And when you're strong, right. sometimes you topple over. Right, right. Yeah. 
okay, this would not be a good interview if we did not talk about an interview that you did yeah. with someone that you dreamed about um, having that interview with for, for a long, long time. So 20 years, yeah. Uh, back in 1988, when we started the magazine, uh, Visions, I had the opportunity to interview some really amazing people, everybody from Shirley MacLaine to Ben and Jerry, Dennis Weaver, Grover Washington Jr., Jack Canfield, Marianne Williamson, a lot of spiritual teachers as well. And I had wanted to interview the Dalai Lama. And I was, again, surrounded by yaysayers. I am very fortunate that I have, have had very few naysayers in my life. Oh, that's great. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm really blessed. And I want to be that for other people right. as well. So nobody said, oh, that's never going to happen. That's a pipe dream. They said, yeah, we know. Someday it's going to happen. So I took practical steps. I created vision boards. And, and your listeners may know what those are. Treasure We've map, had people boards. talk about that in here. Yeah, yes. And it's a focal point. It's taking pictures and words that center around something that you want to create. So I've made several of them, probably about half a dozen of them in 20 years. And each one of them, I had a picture of him in various forms. And somebody said, why don't you cut out a picture of yourself and put it next to him as a way of really bringing it in? So I did that. And I had them all over, all over my room um, in my office. And then somebody said, why don't you write questions as if you're going to be an, you know, interviewing him the next day? And why don't you keep talking about it? Now, the toughest part was just sur after I did all that, surrendering it. And that's part of the manifestation process. And I call it manna, M-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, like manna from heaven. You plant the seeds, you, know, you prepare the soil, you plant the seeds, you water and feed it, you take out the weeds of, of the self-doubt, and then you got to let it go. Well, and is the visual a, a, an important it's part important. of it? For me, it is. Some yeah. people are not visual. Some people are auditory. So if somebody wants to create something in their lives, they would say, you know, I am doing this, I'm seeing myself, and tape record it. I never did that, but some okay. people are more auditory. I'm, yes. I'm visual, and I'm a writer. I am so as I, well, yeah. So I, I write things. Yeah. Um, so then I have a, a dear friend who is has been part of the Tibetan rights movement for a lot of years. He's an American Buddhist, Greg Schultz, and I write about him in my book that he was pivotal in getting me the interview. So about six years ago, I'm trying to remember what year it was, he, he came to Rutgers University, which is my alma mater. He was in um, Rutgers in, in New Brunswick. And the people that were producing the event came to me because they know I do PR and marketing. And they said, would you be willing to help promote this? I said, sure. And by the way, is he giving interviews? No, he's not. Okay, I'll help. So I went to the stadium and there were like 20,000 people there, walked around the stadium with my little tape recorder and I interviewed people asking them, what brings you here? How, you know, what does he mean to your life? And I published, you know, I wrote an article about that. I don't even remember where it was published. So in 19, oh, excuse me, 2008, 2007, 2008, um, I get a, a call from somebody saying, we're bringing his holiness into Philadelphia. Will you help us promote the event? I said, sure. And by the way, no, he's not giving interviews. Okay, I'll help. Right. So then my friend Greg Schultz comes to me a few months later and he says, I think we might have something here. I can't promise you, but it was like that kid's game. You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. Now, when you found out he was coming to Philadelphia, mm -hmm. were you saying to yourself, I am going to get that interview? I did, but I wasn't sure how it was going to happen because they kept telling me no, but my heart kept telling me yes. Okay. And my guidance kept telling me yes. yes. So Greg said, we might be able to do something. Not sure yet, but I'll let you know. So my, as I mentioned, my dad had just died in April of that year. My dad grew up in South Philly. And for any of your listeners that know the South Philadelphia area, people know, they know people. My father knew everybody, you know, he, yeah. he every place we went, he'd know somebody. Yeah. So I think my dad had something to do with it too. Okay. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was pulling some strings from upstairs. Right. See, more powerful yeah, yeah, when, yeah, when, yeah, when you're on the other side. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, Moish, Moish Weinstein was my dad's name. Nice Irish boy. Oh, and he nice. had, you know, so he, he had his connections, I think. Yeah. So yeah. Greg contacted me and he said, I'm now the event planner for this, this event. I might have some more pull. So in early July of that year, 2008, I'm at the um, Exponential Music Festival. WXPN is a local music station. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have this outdoor festival. So I'm there with two friends. One of them happens to be a photographer. My cell phone rings, and it's Greg. And he says, are you sitting down? I said, should I be? He said, yes. Now, when off. he asked you that question, I did knew. you know? You know. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so he said, take off July 16th and 17th. You've got the interview. And he said, and by the way, you are the only journalist in the Philadelphia area that he's granting an interview 
you too. Wow. I screamed into the phone. My photographer friend snapped the picture. Oh, good. And I, and I still have it. Good. So then a day later, he gets back to me. He says, you still have the interview, but they want somebody from the Inquirer to cover it as well. And I said, yeah, I think I'll share. No yeah. problem. It's okay. So, <laughs> so I shared the interview with um, uh, David O'Reilly, who is the religion columnist and I, I believe he still is for the inquirer mm -hmm. so the day before the two of us are there at an event at a buddhist temple prior to the day we're going to be interviewing him and we're looking at these other journalists thinking you know we're like two little conspiratorial little kids they don't know that we're going to get to see him right well. right so david says i got a new suit for the occasion i said i got a new dress for the occasion <laughs> <laughs> now question you had written questions for him yeah. years prior and I didn't use any of them. Did you tweak those? Or oh, I, did didn't, you, I didn't use them at you all. You didn't use them at all. I didn't use okay. them at all. Um, because I didn't want it to be a typical news story. Mm -hmm. I, when I do interviews with people, they're conversations like you and I are having now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got your questions, but we're ordering off the menu here. Yeah, right, So I did right. that with His Holiness, too. I mean, I still had some things I wanted to know. Um, so David and I said, you know, we're each getting 15 minutes with him. What if in the spirit of cooperation, we go in there together and we get a whole half hour? Right. He gave us 45 minutes. Oh, that's great. So I walked in the room and I'm already shaking. Like, this is surrealistic. Is this really happening? And he's standing maybe 20 feet from me, smiling. I'm sorry. And where are you? Oh, in uh, it's, it was at the Four Seasons okay. in Philly. And uh, they didn't even tell us until the night before where he was going to be. I said, do you really think that, do they really think we're going to tell anybody? We're yeah, <laughs> right. We're not but telling security, anybody anything. But for yeah. security reasons, they didn't okay. want us but to But you, you go into the lobby or is he in a private no, room? in his room they okay took, we were escorted to his room okay you know, through the cadre of trying to visualize yeah. yeah you can get the image right and it's in and actually the, the interview is in the book the story about it's in the book as okay. well so um we walk in he's like 20 feet away i take one look at him and start crying oh he walks up to me and you do this ritual when you meet the dalai lama where you take a white silk scarf it's called a kata k-a-t-a-h and you fold it and you hold it in prayer pose mm -hmm. you know, with your hands at your chest and then he takes it blesses it puts it around your shoulders well not only did he do that but he hugged me oh. and i felt like the floor just <laughs> Well, right well, <laughs> yeah, it's not your typical hug, no, I'm guessing. No, no, no. And I joke that it's like junior high school when the person you have a crush on kisses you on the cheek and you think, oh, I'll never wash again. <laughs> yeah, right, well, right. I can assure you that in the last, was it seven, seven years? No, was this is 20, so last five years I've washed. Not <laughs> only that, you, but you've been passing that hug on to others yeah. because I will point yeah. out that when you walked in here, I got a nice big warm uh, hug. So the Dalai Lama hug was in there. Yeah, too. I he hope so. Oh, yes, I always. Hope so. Um, so we did the interview and I decided I wanted to humanize him and, and have him not be the icon that people expect. Right. So David's question questions were understandably newsy they were there was a news story mine were things like what brings you joy how do you take care of yourself um, he talked about the idea that he he goes to he stops work at like 4 30 in the afternoon doesn't eat dinner goes to bed sleeps till like two in the morning gets up and meditates has breakfast uh, you know and that starts his day wow. and he's more like a traveling professor these days he does a lot of, of traveling and, and teaching mm -hmm. and less like the the head of a government now, i don't know the politics anymore about right. what he does and what his cabinet or, or whatever the governmental structure is right and he is still government in exile you know tibet is still government in exile so my agreement with them with the people that brought him in was that i spread the word about what's going on through my interview, through you know what I do, anywhere and everywhere. I have permission to use it anywhere. Good. So it's published on the internet. It's a chapter in my Bliss Mistress book. Right. And I talk about it every chance I get. I love that. I read it. It's yeah, great. Yeah. It's so great. So it was, it was absolutely amazing. And what really touched my heart uh, was that somebody, a friend, and again, I don't remember who said this. I said, you know, I waited 20 years to interview him. And this friend said, bless their heart, whoever they were, said, what if he waited 20 years to be interviewed by you? Oh, like, oh there you go. We are all, so, I mean, and that's the divine design. How do we know that we didn't make a soul contract before each of us incarnated that on July 17th, 2008, we were going to meet? Right. You know, and, and how do you and I know? I mean, we talked about how you and I met. Right. Let's um, right. Let's yeah, uh, Molly Neese, who Niece. we had on the show uh, just a couple weeks mm -hmm. ago. Um, I understand was a, a chain in the link. She was a link in the chain. Yes. That us together. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. In 2009, I'm thinking it was um, I was part of an event 
that brought in Reverend Michael Beckwith and his wife, Ricky Byers Beckwith. If any of your listeners have read The Secret or have seen the movie The Secret, he featured prominently in it. He's the African-American minister from California with the dreads, the, right. you know, down to his, or the cornrows down to his, his shoulders. Very charismatic. So um, part of an organization called Common Ground Fellowship. I was the event promoter, the PR goddess for it. And a woman named Chris Baeza was the event organizer. And she and I became friends. We worked very closely together, talking two or three times a day on the phone. We pulled off this amazing event. There were 1,200 people in this cathedral where they spoke. And it was life-changing. Again, a chapter in the book. Okay. Um, and uh, Chris introduced me to this friend of her, hers that she called Molly Sunshine. Um, Molly. She is. Molly needs, oh, she's just a yeah. beaming. She is. She's, yeah. You know, um, so anyway, she had this event called the Molly Sunshine Tour, and it was my 52nd birthday. So I said, I'm going to treat myself to this. I took the day off of work, and I went to this women's event, and it was in a tent, and I think it was really cold. Um, it was in October of 2000. Uh, where was it? I'm, I'm trying to remember where it was. It was in the grounds of some estate. Molly, Molly would be able to tell you, but it was in this big white tent. And if I remember, it was kind of chilly, but inside was nice and warm and sunny because um, at every table, she had this these beautiful decorations and candy and just colorful stuff. And she had us telling our stories about transformation, about mm -hmm. what brought us here. Shortly after that, um, she put a call out to the women that had attended and said, I'm writing a book and I would like for women to contribute chapters. And it was called Sunshine Sisters, A Celebration of Legacy. And she chose 10 of us to write our legacy stories and I was honored to be one of the 10. Then she decided to put on this event called Sunshine Sister Idol, like American Idol, except it was for speakers. And we each had five minutes to present our um, story. And then we were going to be judged by local celebrities and by the audience. So I was there with ten, nine of the other women, and we were all really nervous. So, you know, um, During the intermission, this man came up to me, and he said, my girlfriend and I really liked what you had to say, and we're voting for you, but she's too shy to come up and talk to you. Can you come over to her? So I did, and I met the woman that became the editor of my book. Uh, oh. Her name is Pamela Maliniak, and she's just amazing. And I started talking to her, and I said, well, what do you do professionally? She says, I'm an editor. And I said, well, guess what? I need an editor. Yeah. And we talk. So even though I didn't win the contest, I tell Pam, I won you. You were the prize. Right. And not only that, then you let's talk about the, the book. book. Mm -hmm. The book, Absolutely. which is uh, The Bliss Mistress, and it's a guide to transforming the ordinary into the extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So let, let's talk about your one of your favorite chapters in the book. Maybe you can share with the listeners. Well, there's several of them. Obviously, the one with the Dalai Lama is a favorite chapter. Right. But um, where the title came from first, I just want to tell you, um, my alter ego, I didn't even call it that, an alter ego, but another aspect of myself is Bliss Mistress. And that's a, a branding, I guess, is a term we can right. use. Because a dear friend of mine, um, who I write about in the book as well, his name is Jazz, lives on the West Coast. Uh, when I was teaching a workshop called BYOB, Be Your Own Bliss, someone called me a bliss master, that I was teaching people how to live their bliss. So when I told him about it, he says, oh, no, bliss mistress. So he said, if you're going to call yourself that, you better live it. So the book is The Bliss Mistress Guide to Transforming the Ordinary into the Extraordinary uh, because I believe that at every moment we can turn our lives from black and white to technicolor, just like in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy steps off the porch. And you'll see the butterfly on the cover um, is designed that way. The left side is black and white. The right side is, is technicolor. And this was designed by a friend named Cindy Greb, who's a local artist. And butterflies symbolize transformation. And my mother also influenced that. She went into hospice in May of 2010 and then died in November of 2010. And while I was down in Florida visiting her and I had the blessing of being able to be there a few, like, a few days at a time for the last six months of her life, she said, you, you need to finish this book because I want to read it. I said, then you got to live a whole lot longer because oh, I've got a lot right, more to do. Right, so I right. would sit by her bedside and I would write. So the last, I can't say which are my, it's like deciding which of your children you like right, the best. <laughs> right, but right. the last two chapters chapters were about our hospice journey and, and what happened after she died, including a lot of butterfly miracles. Uh -huh. um, there's a chapter called A Relationship with Chocolate. And I, do you know any woman that doesn't have a relationship with chocolate? Not really. <laughs> I do not. And I forgot I was going to bring you some. I forgot. Oh, that's okay. I, I don't need it. it. Yeah, I don't need it. it. <laughs> uh, but there's that. Um, there's a chapter um, called Living Orgasmically. And it's not just about the physiological concept, but it's about what would it be like to live with your senses fully alive yeah. and just jumping into everything. Right. Um, so there's that chapter. Um, there's a chapter called My Womanifesto 
where I write, wrote about what I stand for, what my values and beliefs are. Mm-hmm. And I encourage men and women to write that for themselves. Now, even though it seems like this is a woman's book, there are a lot of men that have read it and find it empowering themselves. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. 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 Um, there's one that I called um, Pissing on the Fire, which is how I talked about how I met Chris and how I, we did the um, the event with the Beckwiths. And that title came from the idea that as powerful women, we often douse our light and our heat because we're told don't make waves, don't stand out. Well, and self-doubt. Yep. Lots of self-doubt. Yeah. And I have a a very active monkey mind inner critic that tells me, like when I got this interview with the Dalai Lama, um, I did, I, what kicked in was what I call imposter syndrome. And no matter, and a lot of, a lot of your listeners, men and women, but again, more women because we're indoctrinated this way, uh, believe that we're not, despite all evidence to the contrary, we're really not that successful or we shouldn't be, or we're not pretty enough, not smart enough, not young enough, not rich enough, not thin enough, all of those things. So Mm -hmm. who are you to interview the Dalai Lama? Right. You know, and Marianne Williamson talks about the idea of who are you not to be? She wrote this, this beautiful piece that Nelson Mandela used in his, um, in, in his inaugural speech um, that you're playing small doesn't serve the world so it's it's about letting our light shine and that's what I encourage people to do to become the mistress or master of their own bliss right right it's all you know we're coming to the end of the thank show you. and um, I really would like to have you on another well, time you. because there's thank lots you. of other things we can talk thank about um, be- before we end um, I'd love for you to give your contact information Absolutely. Um, I just want to remind the listeners the name of the book is the bliss mistress and I highly recommend it mm-hmm. if nothing else great tips on how yep. to wake up like you said excited when our culture is so mm-hmm. stressful and, right. and overcharged. Um, so why don't you share yeah, your contact absolutely. information? And again, it's the Bliss Mistress Guide to Transforming the Ordinary into the Extraordinary. It's available on Amazon. I'm going to be hosting my own radio show, yes. not in competition with this one on right. Thursday nights. Um, <laughs> it's called It's All About Relationships, and it's on Vivid Life Radio. The website is vividlife, all lowercase, dot me, M-E. Okay. And it's going to start, it's going to debut this Thursday night which will be Valentine's Day, but okay. it will be every Thursday night from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. It's a blog talk radio show, and my guests will be talking about all different aspects of relationships. Okay. My website is liveinjoy, L-I-V-E-I-N-J-O-Y.org. I'm also incredibly active on Facebook, although I'm friended out, unfortunately, you can still follow. So it's Edie Weinstein, W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Okay. So bless you, and thank you oh, so much for having you. me on the show. thank you. Thank you. It was great fun. Oh. Um, I appreciate it. That's it, gang, for this week's Women to Watch. And again, my name is Susan Rocco. And if you are listening and you are interested in coming in and sharing with us some of the wonderful things you're doing, I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to call me at 215-313-5561 or shoot me an email to srocco233 at gmail. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.